Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. God's divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us through glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Before we get started uh, this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and ask God's direction and guidance on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed your word to us. It teaches us to think, to think in terms of truth, to think in terms of reality as you have created it, to think in terms of absolutes. And yet we live in the midst of a world, a system of thinking that is contrary to that, that teaches us that we're all just a the consequence of an accident, accidental electrical discharge hitting a mass of protoplasm, and somehow it all developed over millions of years into intelligent, sentient beings. Father, we recognize that this is false, but so much flows from those evil ideas. So much has penetrated what was once a nation that was focused on your word and transformed it into a nation that is hostile to your word. We know that the only hope for stability in life comes from being grounded upon your word, uh, which is our sure and certain foundation. And, Father, we pray that as we study today, you will open our eyes to what is going on around us, how it has influenced us and how it is influencing our families, and challenge us with what the Scripture says, that we are not to be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world around us. So, Father, we pray for insight that in your light we will see light, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, but we're really not going to spend a lot of time there, but that's our focal point. We are looking at this week the decline and fall of the impact of the Christian worldview. Last week we looked at the rise and development of the Christian worldview, and I think I titled the message a little differently. I think I titled it, you know, the rise and fall of Christianity's impact, and somebody thought, subjectively, personally about that. Well, well, people are being impacted by the gospel all around. The reason we think subjectively is because of a man named Immanuel Kant, who we will teach today. What we're talking about is the impact of an external worldview that impacts how we think and how we look at life, and it shows up in all kinds of subtle and interesting little ways. We're talking about the fact that from the time of the birth of the church in A.D. 33 until roughly the midpoint of the 1600s, uh, we saw the advance, the rise, the penetration of a Christian worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview into the Western European civilization, and it transformed it. When we listen today to the voices of critical race theory, 
uh, blaming the uh, white Europeans for all that's wrong in the world, that, that's just a, a false label. They're blaming Christians for what's wrong in the world. Because prior to Christianity, the nations of Western Europe, the various pagan tribes that inhabited Europe, the, the Goths and the Vandals and the Saxons and uh, various other tribes were just as pagan and just as barbaric as any African tribes, any uh, tribes or groups in uh, Asia or anywhere else in the world. Because those ethnic groups, those tribal groups, those clans that rejected God all had very similar types of religions. Christianity changed that. Judaism changed it. Biblical Judaism in the Old Testament changed that. It had an impact uh, at times to the cultures the, the, uh, around them, but it didn't penetrate uh, very far. But Christianity did, and Christianity had a transformative effect, and everything that we enjoy and are blessed with in our life is the consequence of the impact of a Judeo-Christian worldview on Western European civilization starting in the first and second century. And what we've been studying in our look at Ephesians chapter 4 is that there is a contrast in the way that the Gentiles what Paul calls, the, to, speaking to the Ephesians, the rest of the Gentiles, the way they thought, the way they thought, the way they lived, their value systems, the decisions they made. There's a difference between how they thought, lived, and acted, and talked, and how Christians are to think, live, act, and, and, and talk. It's a contrast. And so... He starts off in this passage, which we have studied for several weeks now. The command is that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or in the vanity or in the emptiness, the fruitlessness, the purposelessness of their thinking. Why is our thinking purposeless as unbelievers? It is because we cannot think as God would have us to think. We can't think within the framework of the reality of God's creation, and we can't, therefore, develop our thoughts on a sure foundation. And not only that, but it penetrates everything else in our thinking. Our understanding is darkened. We're alienated from the life of God because of an, an ignorance. And we're not ignorant of everything, but we're ignorant of the important things. We're ignorant of those things which enable us to accurately, truly understand everything else. And what the result of that is we're given over to lasciviousness, to licentiousness, to sexual immorality, uh, to work out all uncleanness with greediness, which in a parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says is fundamentally idolatry. We're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. From Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. And then the contrast, but you have not learned Christ in such a way. Now, the reason I'm reminding you of this is so those who weren't here will understand why I'm going to do what I'm going to do tonight. We have to understand the contrast between the world around us and the world that is around us in the church. We have these two commands in this section of Ephesians. On the one hand, the positive command to walk worthy of the high position to which we were called. What is that high position? We are members of the body of Christ. 
we are members of his church. His church is also elevated by being called the bride of Christ. Therefore, we have a unique identity, and we are to live in, uh, uh, in conformity to that identity. It's much like some, fa- some of your fathers may have said to you, you know, your friends may do this, but you can't. You can't do this because you're part of our family. My father would say, you're, you're part of the Dean family. We don't live like that. We have good manners. We're kind. We're gentle. We read the scriptures. We're focused on the word. There is a standard of thought, a standard of living that is to be part of the family, uh, the family of God. This is part of what we know to be uh, what the Bible describes as spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says, "For the and I have translated this anew uh, in order to get the uh, importance of what is being said here. For the weapons of our warfare, the text is usually translated not fleshly. Well, what it means is they're not the product of the sin nature. See, that gets to the fact that the way we fight the war doesn't come from the tools of the sin nature. It comes from the tools of the scripture. It's methodology. How we do what we do is as important as what we do how we do if we do a right thing in a wrong way it's still wrong so we've got to learn the right way and the right thing to do and the right way to do it so the weapons of our warfare are not those of the sin nature but mighty in god for the demolition total destruction demolition of strongholds are the word there's it's a military imagery here of fortifications that's that the the deep-seated thought systems that we have imbibed from the world have fortified themselves in our soul, and it's only the Word of God that is going to demolish them. And we are to uh, be involved in this demolition of these strongholds by dismantling the arguments. That's the Greek word. It refers to arguments or imaginative rationalizations. We're going to talk about some of these this morning. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So if we're fighting knowledge, what do we fight it with? Emotion? No. We fight it with knowledge. So this is all about thinking. You know, a lot of people think that, that, that Christianity is about being pumped up, feel good, motivated, all of those things, but it's the Word of God that should do that, not artificial singing of praise choruses which are, have a theology that is a quarter of an inch deep and 20 miles wide. We have to think, not emote. It's not about feeling. So we have to dismantle these arguments or these imaginative rationalizations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God by bringing every thought, not every emotion, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking that you may demonstrate that Will, that that will of God that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So last time I started a massive project, and that is to summarize two thousand years of history into just a few short minutes, because we have to understand how we got where we are today. 
All of you have been asking this question every day. You get up, you watch the news, and you say, what is going on? Why is this so crazy? And your next-door neighbor is saying, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> your kids are saying, isn't it great? You know, you're going, have they lost their mind? What's happened? Okay, this is a timeline. And what I'm showing is in this chart is basically that there's always an external worldview that is putting pressure on the church. In the ancient world, it was Neoplatonism and rationalism. Plato taught that the reality is in this ideal world. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. I'm not going to deal with it in detail. Then we have Aristotle. Aristotle said, no, 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 Plato, you're all wrong. It, it, it's not this ideal world that we somehow uh, get in touch with intuitively, but it is, it is what we see. It's concrete. It's what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, what we hear. It's empirical. And so his theology is empiricism. Now, th- that developed in the ancient world, but after... The cross after Christianity began in the early church, they're living in a world that is dominated by Platonism and Neoplatonism, where material things are not as important. It's the immaterial and the spirit. So they denigrated the physical. And that's why you ended up with monasticism. And we're going to go off and just think about the spiritual things and we're going to give up food and water and all of these other things that they did because the physical is not important. And the spiritual is. So it, it, it was reshaping Christianity. You end up with allegorical interpretation uh, that I talked about the last time. And then that's replaced by a, 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 an Aristotelian epis, um, uh, empiricism, which comes through, um, through Thomas Aquinas. Now, we've gone through this chart many times. I just want to remind you of this, that there's only four ways you know things. First, you know that by reason. Rationalism is the idea that we are born with innate ideas, and through the independent or autonomous use of reason and faith in human reasoning and ability and intellectual um, accomplishments, we can derive at truth, a capital T truth, without God. We don't need God. It is based on the method of an independent use of logic and reason. Empiricism says, no, 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 that's not right. We have sense perceptions. We learn from the things that we do, from what we see, taste, touch, hear. Uh, that's an external experience, gives birth to the scientific methodology, which is really a blend of the two. But it's still faith alone in human ability. The method is an independent use of logic and reason. Now, historically, you had Platonism, but it went bankrupt. It couldn't answer the big questions of life. Then you had Aristotelianism, and it went bankrupt. It couldn't answer the details of life. Well, if I can't get there through logic and reason, I have to get there through irrationalism. I reject logic and reason, so I'm just going to jump to the conclusions I want because I can't get there logically or rationally anymore. And so that gave birth to mysticism which emphasizes an inner private experience or intuition. Again, it's still faith in human ability that I had this dream in the night and I believe I can correctly interpret it and I can know truth because I'm so brilliant and I'm so smart and I'm omniscient that I can properly interpret my feelings. 
that concept of of assuming that we're omniscient, that we know enough to be able to go from, you know, a minute amount of data to understanding everything is the heart of arrogance. So the methodology is in mysticism is non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable. We have revelation, though, that says that God has indeed objectively revealed himself to us and that that is used in Scripture to say this is the light of the word. This is, God is light, and when he reveals himself, that revelation is referred to as light. And the psalmist says in Psalm 27 that in your light we see light. So if we reject God, then we have rejected light. And what does that mean? That means we're in darkness. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in, in, in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, where he says we walk in the futility of our mind because our understanding is darkened. We've rejected light, so we're just like the men in Plato's cave. We're trying to figure out what the cave looks like, and we don't have any, any illumination. Revelation doesn't reject logic and reason. You use logic and reason to understand the scriptures. But you do it under the authority of God and not independently of God. This leads, like everything else, to a worldview. The foundation of all thought begins with metaphysics. It's like an iceberg. You know, we, we see everybody's life, what they do, and the, the product of their lives, but that's based on certain things that are below the surface. And with an iceberg, only 10% is visible. The rest is not visible. This is what happens in life. We see what's visible. We never talk about what's below the surface. But what you see in terms of what's happened in our world and in our culture is what's above the surface. What we don't talk about, what's never discussed, is how that relates to our basic understandings, first of all, of reality, what's called metaphysics. What's out there? Is there God? Is there a God or no God? Is he personal or impersonal? How you answer those questions is going to change everything above that level. And if you reject God or you don't think that God has spoken, then everything above it that you build on that, Jesus used the analogy of building a house on quicksand, and it's going to be destroyed. It cannot stand the the storms of life. Uh, once you understand God, it, you understand how we know truth. We know truth because God revealed truth, and in the light of God's truth, we can understand everything else. That leads to how we know what's right and wrong. And you have a lot of people today, you say something and they'll say, no, you're wrong. But you can be wrong and you can be right. And I'll have another view and I'm right in my view. Everybody has their own view of what's right or wrong and that's okay. That's irrational. That's illogical. No wonder people can't do math anymore. They don't know how to think. Four times in the last month, I've had checkers who can't figure out how to give me right change when I'm exchanging something. For example, they give me four ones, and I don't want the ones, and I say, okay, I'll give you a, a five, and uh, I'll give you back the four run, ones and, and some extra change, which equals $5, and you give me a $5 bill. Whoa, wait a minute. I, 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 let, let's, put it, let, let's count it out on the counter and then, you know, it's like they're counting on their fingers. They don't know how to do that. I've had a come say, well, I understand what you're trying to do, but I just don't trust it, so I'm going to have to go to a manager. 
You can't think because we have a worldview that denigrates reason and intelligence and absolutes. So all of that explains what we mean by a worldview. In a Judeo-Christian worldview, God is the ultimate reality. He is a triune God. He is one and many at the same time. That answers the fundamental question that philosophers have struggled with for centuries. They can't explain unity and diversity at the same time. They go to one or the other, but their minds can't put it together. Now, you can't put it together either if you've never heard this before. So, But that's, that's one of the basic issues in philosophy. Only the Bible answers these questions. So we saw the impact that... In the Old Test, in the uh, early church, you had rationalism and idealism and mysticism from Neoplatonism and then empiricism, but then we see it repeated after the in, after the Reformation, and so you uh, see the impact after the Reformation. You have a return back to pagan thinking with uh, Christians. Okay, but they're thinking in a non-biblical way. So you have Descartes, I mentioned him last time, and others. And Descartes puts forth a rationalism or idealism. It's just a modern view of of Plato's ideas. And that uh, coupled with, uh, at first you have um, the the rationalists, then you have the empiricists, John Locke and Barclay, Hume, others. And so what happens is, that this Enlightenment kind of thinking produces modernism. And modernism rejects the authority of God's word. And this permeated the culture until you get to the end of the 19th century and you have this explosion with invisible Christianity that is within all of the churches because during the 19th century as, it, as this kind of thinking coming out of the universities primarily in Germany but then it penetrated England and eventually uh, the U.S. to this explosion with invisible Christianity that split churches all up and down the spectrum. It was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The liberals were the modernists. The word that you often find describing them in the literature is they had they were progressive and they rejected God as their as their foundation. And so up until uh, eighteen hundred, uh, roughly eighteen hundred, uh, Immanuel Kant publishes the critique of of uh, reason, pure reason uh, in about 1775, about the same time you have the beginnings of the American War for Independence. And that leads to a pure subjective mysticism and emotionalism. It always goes through this cycle. Once you get through mysticism, you don't know truth anymore. And the, the culture collapses. It happened in the ancient world, and we've seen a repeat. What changed things was Christianity came in, and Europe is an intellectual intellectually bankrupt culture because when you end up in mysticism, you're just living in irrationality. And Christianity came in and blew it away, transformed Europe into all of the wonderful things that we've experienced in our lives. And then that pattern repeats itself now, and we're in a mystical, emotional, subjective period of time, and when everything is around us is collapsing in terms of the structures of our culture and civilization, what's going to change it? Again, it can only be the Word of God. That's the only thing that gives answers. So we saw this ascendancy, this 
uh, rise of the influence of Christian worldview up until the Enlightenment, and then it breaks down, and we go in the downward direction, and we see this incremental decline of Christian thought. So I want to briefly summarize this. It's going to be much more brief than I had uh, uh, than I had thought it would be, but we had communion, and so have a little short of time. I want to look at the fact that uh, last time I mentioned the rationalists and the empiricists, but we have uh, I have six people who were extremely influential here. Actually, I left one out: uh, Jeremy Bentham. So we have Jeremy Bentham, Jean Jacques Rousseau, Jonathan Edwards. I added in there for a little fun if I can talk have time to talk about him. Immanuel Kant, Karl Marx. Charles Darwin, and John Dewey. Each one contributes something a little different. So what we're saying here is that Enlightenment thinkers, first the rationalists, then the empiricists, shifted the authority for knowledge, the answer to the question, how do I know truth? The Bible says you start with Scripture. God is truth. You start with Scripture. The world says, no, 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 that, that just doesn't say right. We can start with human reason because it is superior to any, uh, any God of the Bible. How can it be superior to a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, and who created all things, including your puny little brain? So they shifted, shift the focus. For knowing truth from revelation to first the autonomous interpretation of human reason and then the autonomous interpretation of human experience. The culture is the result. But see, the point I'm making is we're not to live, think, act like the rest of the Gentiles. If you don't know how the rest of the Gentiles are thinking, how do you know you're not thinking like them? That's our point. This is heavy application. But the reason the church today is in such a mess is that they don't get this. They're going to come in and say, well, let me give you five ways to to have a financial success. Well, the Bible doesn't break it down like that. That's just paganism. So all of this pagan thought is just the thinking of Satan. It mirrors the thinking of Satan, and you'll see as you go through this two basic characteristics. You don't have to remember all the details I throw out, but I want you to look for this. On the one hand, Satan wants to be independent of God. That's called autonomy. I'm going to be like God, independence of God. That is pure, raw arrogance. Okay, so that's one side. The other side that you see is antagonism to God, hatred of God, hatred of his word, hostility to God. Okay, so um, we'll start with the first guy. This is Jeremy Bentham. This guy was a real piece of work. According to one of his admirers and one who was deeply influenced by him and also an early progressive was G.W. Foote in his book, Infidel Deathbeds. He said, Bentham exercised a profound influence on the party of progress. Do you hear that? This is writing in the mid-1700s. A profound influence on the party of progress for nearly two generations. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have heard of Jeremy Bentham because most of us have picked up elements of his thinking from the world around us. That's how influential it is, and it's subtle. 
For two generations, he's the father of philosophical radicalism, which did so much to free the minds and bodies of the English people and which counted among its swordsmen historians like blah, blah, blah. So the point is, he's recognized as having this profound generation. He certainly does. What are his views? His view of God is that there is no God. He was an atheist. He rejected the existence of God. There's no higher authority than mankind. God's just some invisible being who's capricious and insane, and we don't need him. He said, quote, religion has inflicted the deepest injury upon humanity. For Bentham, reason, human reason, is the highest authority. Because, of course, you know that all of us, or any of us, are omniscient. But he thought we were. He deifies each individual, thus laying the foundation for what? What we see today, moral relativism. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes because you're God. Second, he rejected, rejected the depravity of the human race. Humans are basically good. In fact, he, he, he doesn't recognize the fact that, that he can't even talk in terms of terms like good and evil because he doesn't have a, a God for whom things uh, would be evil, uh, who defines sins. So thus, every human being can determine what is best in each situation. This was called utilitarianism. You make your decision not based on some biblical absolute of what's right or wrong, but whatever you at the time determine is going to produce the greatest good for the greatest number. What's wrong with that? How do you know what's going to produce the greatest good? How do you know the impact of this in two weeks, two years, two decades, two centuries? You don't. It assumes human omniscience. That's absurd. So this is, this is Bentham. The fourth thing, he believed that there should be no restrictions on homosexuality as long as it produced no bad consequences, like maybe AIDS or monkeypox or whatever. He's the first person to publicly come out in favor of homosexuality in, in over a thousand years. A Christian emperor of Rome in the mid-third century uh, uh, I mean, uh, Caesar, Philip the Arab, was the first to start putting legal restrictions on the homosexual practices of the priests in the fertility religions. By the 6th century, homosexuality is, is proscribed by law. That does, proscribed is the opposite of prescribed. That means it's prohibited. It is proscribed in the, in the Roman Empire. And it is through Western civilization until Bentham comes along. He's also a strong advocate for what became radical feminism in the early 19th century. He's the godfather of Stuart Mill, who in turn was the godfather of one of the best-known atheist in, intellectuals in the 20th century, Bertrand, Bertrand Russell. John Stuart Mill was an atheist, he followed and expanded on Bentham's utilitarianism. Bentham's his godfather. The families were very close. Most important, he's one of the earliest supporters and develops the ideas that become radical feminism in the early 19th century, gender egalitarianism, and which was considered necessary to destroy the family. You can't separate these different issues. A lot of people today want to compartmentalize them. 
But if you go back and you read these philosophical thinkers, they see the interdependence and interconnectedness of all of these ideas because their ultimate goal is to destroy the family. As it was known, to destroy the nuclear family, the biblical family, they hate Christianity. Uh, he was opposed to traditional economics based on the biblical concept of family. That had dominated Western civilization. He said, we've got to get rid of this and get rid of this whole family concept. And so he lays the groundwork intellectually for free sex, easy divorce, destruction of divine institution, number two, which is marriage, and number three, which is family. Then we come to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Paul Johnson, in his book, The Intellectual, says he's the first of the modern intellectuals, their archetype, and in many ways the most influential of them all. Last time I really, I know I've heard about Rousseau and other places, but Rousseau is not a commonly understood person, and, and I, it wasn't, he wasn't taught that much when I was in high school, not that much when I was in college, but he's, he is the main influence behind everybody I'm going to talk about, whether you're talking about Charles Darwin or Karl Marx or Immanuel Kant, any of these guys that come after him, they're all indebted to Rousseau. Edmund Burke, that great... Um, English uh, parliamentarian and thinker said, there is a great dispute among their leaders, that is the leaders of the French Revolution, uh, of which of them is the best resemblance of Rousseau. They, they consider Rousseau the model, what they were trying to attain to. He is their standard figure of perfection. So Rousseau was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He said, well, you know, all religions are equally valid. In terms of human beings, he said there's no inherent depravity. Human reason is ultimate. Man is corrupted through the shift from primitive state and of nature to urban sophistication. So when you start moving into the big cities, that's when men get greedy. That's when they get uh, selfish and arrogant. So what's the solution? If the problem's social, the solution's going to be social this is when you start getting ideas that be, will become what we call today social justice. His view of the nature of humanity led to the further development of progressivist ideas. His trust in the gradual improvement or perfection of the human race through the progress of mankind. So we've got to go back to a more primitive state. So he, um, his view of man leads to a utopian view of the future. That's what we see with all the social justice movements. Everything on the left today is all about bringing in a man-centered utopianism, perfection. He rejected marriage. See, his ethics are awful. He rejected marriage, so he lived with a woman for about 30 years. She outlived him. She gave him five children, each of which he took and never named, which denies their humanity. And he took them to an orphanage, orphanage where the fatality rate was in excess of 60%, assuming they would die. Lovely person. Immanuel Kant's a German philosopher. Where he's important is up until Kant, people did believe, even though they disagreed how you got to it, that there was objective truth. From Kant on... Nobody believes in objective truth. No intellectual believes there's objective truth anymore. You only know your perceptions. You don't know an apple as it is. You only know your perception of the apple. 
Then there's the lovely Karl Marx. He's an ethnic Jew. His father converted to Christianity when he was young so that he, he could hide his Jewishness. That's his father. So Marx was reared and confirmed as a Lutheran. There's a possibility he might have actually been saved. But something happens, nobody knows what, in his late teens, and he changes, and he becomes a hate-filled, embittered, angry person. Whoever you read, who anybody who knew him at the time, they always talk about how hateful he was, how angry he was at, at everything, and anti-Semitic. He is virulently anti-Semitic. And he saw that man's basic problem was class warfare, the struggle between freedom and equity. So he wants to guarantee equal outcomes. To those who have, go to those who don't have. It's it's stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Uh, And that destroys personal responsibility and what the Bible teaches about labor. He said, communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. Anybody see the contradiction in that statement? Is that an eternal truth? See, he is foreshadowing postmodernism. He said, communism abolishes all eternal truths. Does that, wait a minute, you just stated an eternal truth. So communism is going to abolish that. See, you get into this stage where rationalism always goes to irrationalism. He um, rejected total depravity. His ethics were utilitarian, going back to Jeremy Bentham, and he's filled with anger, hatred, bitterness. He wrote a lot of poetry. In one of his poems called The Invocation of One in Despair, he said, So a God has snatched from me my all in the curse and rack of of destiny. All his worlds are gone beyond recall. Nothing but revenge is left to me. I shall build my throne high overhead. I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened when he was a teenager, but he is mired in the quicksand of vindictiveness. And Human Pride, this was the name of another poem. He said, Then I will walk triumphantly like a god through the ruins of their kingdom. Every word of mine is fire and action. My breast is equal to that of the Creator. Notice the contradiction. So many atheists are mad at God. How can you be mad at somebody that doesn't exist? About the Jews, he said, The fact that the Jews have become so strong as to endanger the life of the world causes us to disclose their organization, their purpose, that its stench might awaken the workers of the world to fight and eliminate such a canker. The canker is Jews. Here's a Jew who's anti-Semitic, self-loathing Jew. His influence is that his ideology is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions in the following years up to today and the economic enslavement of hundreds of millions. And yet you look out on the ideological landscape today and we've got Black Lives Matter and we've got Antifa and we have, uh, of course, the overt uh, Marxism of Cuba and, um, and the socialism of Western Europe and the Marxism of China and uh, Russia. And this is what it leads to. This is the thinking of the rest of the Gentiles. 
Darwin comes along and says we're all just a result of an accident, so therefore there's no purpose in your life or my life except whatever. He didn't go quite this far. What they'll do with that is say except for whatever we assign to it. So Darwin came from a long line of free thinkers, that is, Unitarians and atheists, and rejected God. Therefore, he didn't believe in total depravity or sin. Uh, his ethics were just a scientific for found. Uh, his ethics basically provided a scientific foundation for situational ethics, utilitarian ethics, moral relativism. There, there's nothing that's that's true. You just do whatever you think is best. And the next person is going to say that's wrong, but that's okay because you can't talk to your neighbor anymore and tell them what's right or wrong. He laid the foundation for eugenics, which was selective breeding, and social Darwinism, which led to, to the Holocaust and not Nazism in the Holocaust. But you talk to liberals and you point that out, and they say, no, 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 social Darwinism is a wrong conclusion from Darwinism. No, it isn't. It is an absolutely correct conclusion from Darwinism. You just don't like where the logic takes you because, oh, yeah, you fundamentally reject logic as a means to getting to truth. It's impossible to really carry on a good conversation with committed leftists, those who have really bought into a pagan worldview. Then we have John Dewey, who's the father of modern American education. Everybody who's breathing in this room is a product of John Dewey's philosophy in education to one degree or another. Thankfully, in Texas, not as much as in other places. His views, he, he was born into a Christian home, and his mother was always asking him, are you right with Jesus? It's very possible he was saved. He brought up in a strong Calvinistic home. But when he got into college, he turned his back on his Christian, or began to turn his back on his Christianity, and he's mentored by William James, who was uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's godson. E- Emerson was a transcendentalist. You know, I didn't have time to go into him. He's another another bad guy. Uh, his view of God, he rejected uh, Christianity by his early 30s. He, his, he, his major influences were Rousseau, Kant, Descartes, Darwin, and G. Stanley Hall, who said, uh, other racial stocks than ours will later advance the kingdom of man. Notice that, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of man, as far beyond our present standpoint as it now is above the lowest savage. They are indebted totally to, to Darwin. Dewey's educational theories broke new ground and continued to wield influence at the dawn of the 21st century. He replaced home. He wanted to replace all home education with social education under the state. Does that sound familiar? What's going on in Loudoun County in Virginia is the parents have no right to go to the school board meeting or to tell the school board what what should be going on in the classroom. That's all. That's Dewey to a T. Uh, he said that school was not a, an educational institution; it's primarily a social institution to teach what he would call so, what is called today social justice. Education is the regulation of the process of coming to share in the social consciousness. He was one of the co-authors of the Humanist Manifesto that came out in 1934. He said, the deepest moral training is precisely that which one gets through having to enter into proper relations with others in a unity of work and thought. Where do we get our morals from others? 
the relativism. We don't get our morals from an absolute. You get them from being in that social environment of school. What does the scripture say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You start with God. Psalm 27, in your light I see light. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is what the scripture says. And my point of going through all of this horrible quicksand of paganism is that we've all been infected by it to one degree or another because this is the cultural water in which we swim. Just as the early church was impacted by Neoplatonism and the late medieval church was uh, impacted and distorted by Aristotelianism, and then you get it, the same thing repeats again after the Protestant Reformation. You get the impact of, of, uh, of Enlightenment rationalism and uh, Enlightenment uh, idealism, and then you get into the modernist period, all of that. What does Scripture say? Scripture says that you are no longer to walk. That's a metaphor for how you think, how you live, how you act, how you talk. You are not to carry on like the Gentiles around you. There's a difference. We're going to get into that in the subsequent verses. This is the setup for that, is to understand why Paul provides this contrast in the next section of Ephesians 4, that we are to live differently because we are new creatures in Christ. And that's why he concludes this by saying, but you have not learned Christ in such a way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth, not a truth, as the truth is in Jesus. Do you want to base your life on the truths developed by hundreds of different men and women of limited knowledge? Or do you want to base your life on the revelation of a God who is omniscient and who created all things and is absolutely truth? On the life of one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is an audacious claim by Jesus. Either it's true or he's insane or crazy or deceptive. But you can't say he's a good man or a nice guy and he helped a lot of people. He's either who he said he was, the only way to God, or he is a complete, crazy, psychotic nut job. And he doesn't look like that. That's the issue. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through this quickly and understand the trends, the thinking of the world around us. How the world, apart from having an anchor of absolute truth, is just awash in the tempest waters of relativistic thinking. And Father, we pray that we would not be this way because as believers, we have something different, something better, something that provides foundation and stability, and that we are a part of a countercultural movement. We are not to be pressed into the mold of the culture around us, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we must realize this isn't something that we can do in just an hour on Sunday morning, but it is a lifetime process 
that we must be dedicated to. Father, we pray for some who are here who may have never trusted in Christ as Savior, that through the communion service and through this message, they would understand that you have solved the problem of sin. You sent your son, he died for our sins, and that our salvation is not based on who we are, what we do, but on trusting Christ as Savior. But then the issue is to grow spiritually or to just sort of wither up on the vine. We can't lose our salvation, but we can just be, just stay a crying baby all our lives. That's the next challenge. And some here need to decide whether, whether being a Christian is something worth uh, their life or whether they're just going to play games with you. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to them. And above all, Father, we pray that each day, that again and again and again, we would make decisions in favor of trusting you, following your word. We'll fail many times, but we have forgiveness of sin. But if we pursue the walk with by the Spirit, then we will grow and mature. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.